0: Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts Sarah and me Sasha.
1: And today we get to dive into equal pay day, lean in, and the need for collective action. So I'm
0: really intrigued in this topic we're discussing today, which is Equal Pay Day 2019 because I was like, what's that? And I had no idea. According to Fortune magazine, April 2nd, 2019 marks Equal Pay Day, which is you know, until Misashi, you explained this concept to me, I didn't understand what that meant. But basically, it's the date into 2019 that women had to work in order to earn as much money as men earn just in 2018. So basically, women would have men and women worked in 2018, everybody made their money, women would have continued to work this many more days into this year in order to make the same amount of money that men made on average last year, right. And so, That was astounding to me that there's actually a date in place and that it can be calculated. But the April 2nd date is calculated based on all women's earnings, right? Averaging together all the income earned by all different types of women, white women, black women, Latino women, all the other demographic groups. And this is where I thought, Misasha, your insight on this was fascinating because averages can be misleading.
1: Yeah, I think when we, you know, for me I didn't learn about equal pay day much before you did, Sarah. I think it was about 3 years ago maybe where I really started to hear it mentioned at all. And I think that you're absolutely right when we hear about on this year it was April 2nd, so we hear about that as equal pay day and we think all women, that's not actually the case. The first equal pay day of the year arrived on March 5th for Asian American and Pacific Islander women. So that basically means that that group earned 85 cents on the dollar relative to men, which is, in theory, the smallest pay gap. But even that statistic can be misleading, because if you think about it, that group's all Asians and all Pacific Islander in the same category. But there is a wide disparity within that category. For example, Indian women earned actually more than your average white man, but... Southeast Asian women, like Thai, Cambodian, Nepalese, and other groups of Asian women, earned closer to 60 cents on the dollar. So their actual equal pay day wasn't even March 5th either. It still hasn't come. So that's that crazy because that's like two right? extra months. It's like for Asian American
0: women, as a general rule, even within Asia, American, Pacific, Islander women, right? That's two months and five days ballpark extra you had to work. But There are, you know, if you look at North Asian, right, Chinese, Japanese, as you said, Indian, like certain subgroups of Asian women are very, very different even within that category. So, huh.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, we've talked about April 2nd being the average equal day for women. For white women, that date is April 19th. So it's not that far from sort of the average date. But I think what's really striking is when you look at when that day falls for everyone else. Because after those April dates, there's a four month wait until the next equal pay day rolls around, which is a sign of how severe the pay gap is for Black women, Native American women, and Latino women. So this year, 2019, Black women's equal pay day will fall on August 22nd. So basically, towards the end of the summer, followed by Native American women's equal pay day on September 23rd. And a Latinas equal payday on November 20th. I'm shaking which, my head. You can't hear me, right? but I'm totally like, what? <laughs> I know. So that means that Latinas face the largest wage gap of around $0.53 cents on the dollar. Black women earn about $0.61 cents on the dollar. And Native American women earn about $0.57 cents on the dollar. And that's every dollar that a white man makes. Or men in general, actually. And those discrepancies make this April 2nd date really confusing. Like you noted, Sarah, it's not the date that everyone hits their equal pay mark, and especially true for women of color, in particular, Black women, Latinas, and Native American women. But it does provide a really good point to start discussing this gender pay disparity, right? Because Worldwide, women are paid an average of 23% less than men, according to the UN. And according to the National Women's Law Center, the average woman would earn over $400,000 more during the course of her career if women were paid equally to men. That's really significant,
0: I think. like That amount of money (laughs) over the course of your career is a huge, huge lifestyle difference, right? So, I think this is where it's interesting because having not known about equal pay day, and kind of, I mean, I do believe and I understand that there is a difference, but a lot of the headlines we're reading and the surveys are showing that people aren't so interested in doing something about this disparity because people don't even believe that this disparity actually exists, which is mind-boggling because it is. It's I mean, it's a fact. It is here. So, SurveyMonkey did an equal pay day survey in 2019, and this year only 62% of Americans see the gap in pay. So even fewer people, like, right? Because over the last two years, they were higher number. And so men and younger Americans are the ones who are most likely to incorrectly believe that genders are paid equally for the similar jobs. This fully half of male millennials think that men and women are actually paid equally. That's pretty amazing. Right? Like, what jobs are people in? I'm really curious what the demographic was of this survey. Like, is it professionals? Is it people? Or is it just their opinion of it? But when you have men and the younger generation believing that obstacles that make it harder for women to get ahead are mostly gone, they're not going to actually try to make that much of a difference, right? I think the stats showed that nearly half of Americans think that obstacles are gone, up from 44% last year to 47%. And nearly six in 10 men think that obstacles for women are gone.
1: So maybe it's, I don't know, what do you think? Like a lack of awareness, but- Yeah, I mean, because all the stats that we just talked about point in the exact opposite direction, right? Right, but then I guess, I'm curious, You know, when they think about, well, why
0: do people not think that? Do they think that it's because The media is not representing the truth, right? I think they said that three in 10 men see reports of the pay gap in the media are overblown. Two in 10 call them, quote, fake news. which (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Can we take that phrase out and shoot it? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Four in 10 Americans, 38%, believe that the gender pay gap is made up to serve a political purpose. So instead of just sincerely looking at the stats, they actually think that there's a twist to it.
1: I think that's hard to do with numbers. I mean, but, you know, but those numbers are obviously showing that that's what's going on.
0: Right. But so if people aren't even acknowledging the problem, you know, how do we even change it? So say we switch it and we say, okay, you know what, there is a gap. I think it sounded like Americans in this survey think that companies should do more to reduce the pay gap right? That's the majority of it. 73% of people said on the survey that companies should be doing more. And some other people said that the government should be doing more, 54%. But they don't know what that means. Like, what does it mean for a company to reduce the pay gap? What does it mean for the government to intervene? And I think there's not a clear agreement on what these two entities can do to reduce and eliminate the pay gap, right?
1: Yeah, I think we have lived in a world for so long where we believe that other institutions or institutions and systems should help, right? Create things to be more equal, but no one has a concept or or no one's stepping forward with an agreement around what that should look like.
0: Right. Though, if we're looking at the government, I think one of the things in in researching this we found was that one, like if you require accountability, I guess is basically one of those things that we talked about, right? So if the companies- I mean, I think companies measure how they know how much their employees are making, right? It's a stat like they have to report it on their W twos and ten ninety nines and everything else. Like it's data that companies have about whether yeah. what gender their employees are and how much money they're making, for example, in this case. So say we do accountability. Say it's something like companies have to submit their gender and compensation information to the government. That is one option. And when we did this, it has proven effective in other countries. There was a study from a bunch of business schools, like INSEAD, Columbia, University of Copenhagen. They found that in Denmark, which requires companies with over 35 employees to report pay data by gender, after they did that, the gender pay gap shrunk by 7%.
1: I think that's really fascinating, because I think when you have that public accountability, right, then you are held to sort of public opinion as well. And I think that then you are forced to be better in some ways, right? If that's something that matters to you, and hopefully it does matter to you. Well,
0: and it's interesting what you just said about publicly available data, because I don't know if your utility companies do the same thing. There's like a, a wave of social pressure that has come into, like not when we grew up, but now when you get your utility bill, for example, they have compared to your average neighbor, you are using this much more or this much less electricity. Like, do you get that on your bill? Yep. And you yep. do too, right? The idea behind that was that societal pressure, that awareness of the average and comparing yourself to where you are, motivates you to make different choices about your actions, about whether you use more electricity or you use less electricity, for example, in this case. So I do wonder once you have that social pressure, or maybe it's, you know, governmental pressure, or, you know, I don't know, whatever peer pressure is in the company language, but, you know, that, oh, those companies are doing better. You know, they have those top companies to work for kind of thing. I wonder if that would be psychologically, again, just having that information out there and the trends out there, something that would make a difference.
1: Yeah, I think that says a lot too, because when you look at creating, you know, those pressures and looking at what everyone else is doing and trying to, especially when you're looking at companies across the board, and some may have way better policies around recruiting, retaining and promoting women in particular, I think that is great. And I think one of the other things that the survey showed, which has been done in California now, is that employers, that people thought that it might be a good idea to ban employers from asking about previous salary during the interview process, which in California now you can't do anymore. Really? Yeah. And I mean, think about that, because if you are faced with candidates who have been discriminated on the past, based on gender, and they are coming in at a lower pay rate. You're not going to be able to ask them that and base where they should be paid on that past salary. It's fascinating, actually, and a great step forward if we're really thinking about changing at a systemic level.
0: That's fascinating. I had no idea. Well, I think so that speaking of changing, what's happening right now in the courts actually is interesting. This case that we pulled up, where apparently there are companies who ha- in the United States now. Who have more than 100 employees may have to begin disclosing their gaps in pay by the spring of 2019, this spring. And I think there was a case, I don't know if you're familiar, I mean, you're the lawyer, right? So (laughs) I did just throw this case out at you, but apparently, pay disclosures and this thing, this movement was finalized by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the summer of 2016. But after President Trump took office, the Office of Management and Budget froze the expanded requirements for disclosure. So there was a bunch of lawsuits, the National Women's Law Center and other groups sued them. And recently, a judge in the federal court ruled in their favor, saying that the government did not properly justify its decision to freeze the expanded requirements. And they're saying that the employers already submit their demographic data to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission annually. And so, yes, I guess there's an argument to be made that it cost companies money to make sort of more granular analysis and require, you know, to report the racial and gender makeup of employees in each job category. So executive, professional, sales, that sort of stuff. But I see the pros and the cons. Financially, it might be more difficult, but in the longer run, it does our society some good to have that information, like we talked about with the social pressure and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think having that information and the granular level, while it's probably going to cost a lot more, in the end when everyone will benefit from that information and because we'll really be able to understand where those pay gaps happen, what those look like, and be able to address them rather than sort of guessing or using a Band-Aid approach or sort of glossing over them, right? Because the thing about pay disparity is it's not going to get better on its own, right? So if we don't take proactive steps to really address that, both at a systemic and individual level, then we're sort of stuck and that disparity is just going to grow.
0: Yeah. Which leads right into. So there's going to be some individual pain for collective gain. Right. And how do we make change? It's this idea of like we need to shift our perspectives.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really associated with women in the workforce and women's actions in the workforce has been lean in right in, you know, the past ten years, let's say, has been even though it's not 10 years old, has been sort of that formation and that movement that has really helped define some views about women in the workplace. And Sarah, you and I were talking about this as we were prepping for recording this. But, you know, I was at a large law firm as a senior associate when Lean In came in and everyone was like, yes, like this is what we need. Every woman was like, I'm gonna join a lean-in circle. Okay, not every woman, but (laughs) some women including me I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm in except, you know I even helped run a lean-in circle and at the same time I wasn't sure that that was what I wanted to do, you know, which thinking back now Was like super telling it was right after it was right when I was pregnant with my second child and I wasn't sure that being at a large law firm and working 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week was what i wanted but the whole premise of lean in was that women are holding themselves back they disengage before they leave the workplace and they should be more authentic so instead of you know evaluating your option and be like ah eh, you know i'm going to take a different option for me. It was more like kind of pushing you to get in there and claim what's yours and be that person.
0: What does that mean? Like to be more authentic, like what was happening in the lean in circles? Cause, and I ask this from the perspective of a person who had already left corporate (laughs) and was actually staying at home with my kids at this point. And I saw the lean in thing and I was like, hell no. Like I (laughs) so firmly disagreed. Like on a visceral level, I felt like And this could have been totally through my own lens of, I was exhausted working in corporate. It was a great, great, great company. I loved what I was doing. I loved the people, all that sort of stuff. But after my dad died, I was like, we don't live forever. I need to be present with my kids. I need to create my lifestyle. Like it was, and all with lots of gratitude for the ability as a family to make the decision to stay at home for a little while with my kids. But I was very much like intuitively, energetically, I was like, no, I want, I really needed to do what was right for me and it was okay for me to step out of the workforce. And it wasn't, I didn't do, I really didn't do the half in, half out. I was just clearly out. And I don't know if that means that it was compatible with this lean in lifestyle because I didn't sort of half opt out. I was just very clear with my choice. And that's why I'm Mm -hmm. curious. I never did lean in circles. I never participated in these conversations.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And the first rule of lean in circle is like Vegas, like what happens (laughs) when lean in circle stays in the lean in circle. I'm not kidding. So without divulging confidences there, I think it was a way, at least our circle was for a way for women to address issues that arose to directed at women in a largely male dominated workforce. And it might've been different and probably was different in companies where it was a different industry or you had more gender equity in roles. But I think that You know, one of the other premises of Lean In is and one that we really wanted to believe in in the circle was that there is something about a meritocracy here. Like if you work hard enough, you're going to get past that glass ceiling. Right. You're going to be that person who breaks it. And you have the personal ability to do that. Like women need to not let men you know, repeat what they said and take credit for it. Women need to get in there and ask for the raise. Women need to be better at business development, you know, figure out the business development that's authentic to you. And that word authentic comes back up again, I think there. And there was a penalty. And I think the surveys around lean in have recognized that there have been penalties, especially for women of color for being authentic, because when you're told to be your authentic self, that really means, Because you're still in a predominantly white, predominantly male corporate world. Your authentic self needs to be a whiter, more (laughs) masculine version of yourself in a lot of ways. But that wasn't what lean in was trying to tell you. So when you're all pumped up from, you know, your lean in feelings and like, yes, I can do this and I'm going to be that trailblazer. And then you work a million hours and you're like, I'm still not that trailblazer because there are still Things that are keeping me from doing that. And I think that one of the things that I took away from Lena, and one of the things that I think a lot of people are really focusing on now, is that it's not so much the individual desire to break through this glass ceiling. Well, it is the individual desire to do that, but you can't do it alone. It has to be a collective and it has to be action on the part of women overall to actually make a systemic change because yes you everyone has the friend or multiple friends who have done it who have been amazingly successful and wonderfully so in male dominated worlds and have created their own paths and are really just killing it but that is still unfortunately the outlier right rather than the common narrative for women right well and biologically
0: speaking and all of those things too i think that men and women are Different, And to ask us as women to compete on equal, like with apples to apples comparisons on how much time you spend or like all those things, I think it wears a woman's body out differently. Women need to show up and be able to show up as women and in our own strengths and ways of communicating and doing all those things, as opposed to having to pretend we are men in order to succeed in a men's world. Right? I mean, right. that's a whole other conversation probably about what yeah. that means biologically oh and all my, that sort of stuff. But
1: podcast episodes alone. <laughs> I think what you said is really true. And women need to show up how they are as a woman of color, as a trans woman, as you know, a lesbian, however that is, and feel OK in a system that benefits all women. Right. A professional system that does. So, you know, I, I think we've seen recently some examples of professional systems and things that are in place out there that still don't recognize that women are not the same as men and are not gonna fit in that sort of similar pigeonhole. Because I think all women, and I you know, had the biggest eye roll ever when recently NASA had come out with this whole announcement that they were gonna have this historic spacewalk on the International Space Station. And you know, it was gonna be two women walking for the first time ever. Only 13 women have ever done a spacewalk. And this would be the first time in history that two women were doing it. And then it was canceled because they couldn't actually find a two suits that would fit both of those women because they only had sort of one traditionally female sized suit. Wow. Right. Right. So I feel like every work, working woman or every woman who's ever been in the workforce, like did a collective eye roll then because that is so ridiculous. But so even though like, you know, and to be fair in looking at this, this might not be overt sexism necessarily, because NASA does have different size suits, as they said, just not on the International Space Station. But it does highlight past decisions NASA has made that have ultimately limited what types of spacesuits are available and by the extension on that, who can wear them? Because basically availability and sizing of the suits is dictated who gets to do a spacewalk. So I thought that this was really interesting, and the Washington Post wrote a really great article about how this incident inspired other women to share their experiences of being in typically male-centered workplaces where they're not being given accommodations for the fact that they're women. And this isn't even accommodations. It's just having the materials needed to be able to do their job, right? Like. You know, of like if you have overalls that are too big, waiting boots that are the wrong size, oversized gloves that you can't move your hands in, right? A lack of bulletproof vests, which hello seems pretty important depending right, on your, on your, your career. Jobs, and a dearth of petite sized personal protective equipment at construction sites. I think this really illustrates very powerfully that this is happening to women regardless of industry, regardless of what you're doing. And the way to make a change here is to talk about it and to think about how we can create a system where it's gonna benefit all women, where we are not, we don't have to be the individual who's gonna break through that glass ceiling because we can't really do it without everyone else.
0: It's so, so true. I think we need to look at the structures. I think it's being aware exactly as you said of these things that may be legacies from decades ago but that need to now be shifting collectively as we all become more aware of opportunities, whether it's through, you know, not necessarily making and having on site, you know, 20 extra gloves that you don't have the women to follow, but maybe it's more of a bespoke, customized outfitting procedure overall or whatever you need to do to make this assumption and these structures not sort of, not make room for women basically, or people of, you know, all different types.
1: Yeah, I think we need to acknowledge that this is not a one size fits all. Right. And it's not a male size fits all right world that we live in. And in order for it there to be more equity on a whole host of levels, like we have to work together and especially as women to get that change going. I was just going to say, like, Mm -hmm. let's share your stories, because I didn't know, like
0: if Nassau hadn't if that story had not come up, we would never have known about the stuff that female astronauts are having to deal with, like what other industries, what other things have we not heard about yet that are out there and we will only know by sharing our own stories and learning together, so.
1: Yeah, I think it's great. Share your story, ask to hear other people's stories and really listen when they tell you stories because you will never know when you hear in those stories or what someone hears in yours of ways that they can think about making some change and then start to really talk about it and talk about it in bigger and bigger groups. I think that it's when we focus on the similarities that we can address policies that benefit only some and really change those to policies that can benefit everyone. I love it. Let's keep it up. Yes, definitely. Keep talking. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't? Sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram
0: at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.